I want to give some special recognition. Um, everything that you see here in terms of decorations and all the planning and setup has Terry Roller and Susan Prentice, uh, especially for setting that all up. So if we could just give them a, an encouragement and some appreciation for all of that. Thank you. Well, in some ways, Easter Sunday is like any other Sunday. In fact, some churches in our Reformed tradition refuse to celebrate Easter because of what this worship Sunday service is supposed to resemble every Sunday. The early church, as Paul in Corinth wrote, celebrated instead of the Sabbath called the Lord's Day on Sunday, remembering the resurrection of Christ and gathering around the word, prayer, and sacrament and taking part of Christian fellowship. So in a sense, this Sunday, celebrated by Christians all around the world, is every Sunday. And Christians rightfully are calling for the same energy, the same enthusiasm, and the same hope that we have on Easter Sunday to be carried over into every time we gather together. So we hope to see many of you here next week. But in so many ways, Easter Sunday is not an ordinary Sunday. Many of you are here today, our guests, and maybe even first-time visitors to the church. We welcome you here. We're so glad that you have joined us here. As early as the second century in Christendom, we have the riches of church history to remind us of churches that would gather on Easter Sunday to celebrate the fulfillment of that historic moment when Jesus resurrected from the dead. There have been all sorts of cultural celebrations throughout history of Easter. Famously, Protestants, in rebellion to the Catholics who gave up eating eggs for Lent in the 19th century, made up the legend of a rabbit who made eggs and then painted them and hid them all over the town for people to find. Because Protestants in the 19th century Europe were really petty <laughs> and towards the Catholic. We apologize for them. And yet somehow that became the tradition that we now associate with bunnies and eggs for Easter. Easter in our day and age is no ordinary Sunday for us. And so this is always an important time to consider the resurrection of Jesus and why this is so relevant for the church today. How does Jesus being raised change anything about our lives today? For that, we turn to our final text in this series in Mark that we've been going through as a church, ending with the greatest miracle of all that Jesus performed, rising again from the dead, as seen through the eyes of these women Mark presents in the text. And they were challenged with the resurrection and its reality. And my prayer is that it would challenge you here today. Uh, before we begin, could we pray together? Father, we thank you for the challenge that is in front of us here today. Lord, that we cannot avoid the question, nor run away without making a decision about it. And that challenge is whether Jesus has truly risen from the grave and whether or not we have a Savior or not. So we pray that your Spirit will reveal to us the reality of this Christ who has rose again. May your Spirit do that now. In his name we pray. Amen. So today, we are going to be looking at this, these eight verses and seeing what the resurrection of Jesus challenges us with. First, the resurrection of Jesus challenges our assumptions. Second, the resurrection of Jesus Christ challenges our fears. And third, the resurrection of Jesus Christ challenges our calling. So it challenges our assumptions, our fears, and our calling. So let's look first about how 
the resurrection challenges our assumptions. The three women in this text are women that, who have a deep history with Jesus Christ. Mary Magdalene, who sat at the foot of the cross and had dealt with spiritual trauma in having seven demons exercised from her by Jesus Christ. Mary, whom uh, this is most likely the mother of Jesus here in this text, and categorized here as the mother of James, according to Mark 15. Uh, and if it is the mother of Jesus, then of course the deep connection with Christ needs no introduction. And Salome, uh, this is thought to be the mother of two of Jesus' closest disciples, James and John, in accordance with Matthew 27, 56. So all of them were deeply connected to Jesus' life and his ministry. They had seen him. They have saw him suffer. And human history had taught them that no one else should come back to life from the grave, from the crucifixion. A symbol that designated not just a sign of capital punishment, but a symbol of a cursed man who would not be punished, not just in this life, but the life to come. So after the Sabbath, on the very first opportunity they get, when the sun had risen, they come to Jesus' grave ready to anoint his body with spices, which was a common practice to perfume the decaying body in a way to honor those who had passed away. Now, what is interesting to note here at the start of this chapter is that the disciples are nowhere to be found. The disciples don't even have the courage to get out of their home because of the fear of what it means to be associated with Jesus. But these women go faithfully to the tomb, risking their lives and their association with Christ to honor him. But even in their courage to do this, we see here some assumptions they hold. Their assumption regarding Jesus is that they believe and understand fully what had happened to him, that they've got it all figured out. There is nothing left for Jesus' life, you see. There is nothing left for him to do, simply for his body to just simply rot away. So they went to bring to this what they assumed to be a dead man the dignity they longed for him to have. Jesus, in their minds, is a figured-out reality. Jesus fits into their mindset of everything they expected just an ordinary man to be. In their actions here, he wasn't the Messiah. He was not the expected king coming to bring salvation for the world. He was just simply dead and now needed some kindness of adorning him. But not only did they assume what had happened regarding Jesus, they also assumed what was possible surrounding Jesus. Anytime you assume, you assume something not only in the positive, i.e. what had happened, but you also assume something in the negative, what is not possible. The women were clearly not expecting Jesus to have risen again, as he once claimed that would happen. The women clearly did not believe that Jesus had other ministry to attend to. The women did not believe in this moment that Jesus couldn't be anything else but a tragic tale. The only question they had was wondering was how they would move this heavy stone out of the way so that they can get to him. Friends, notice what is present here in front of us that should challenge what we think about the resurrection. We may hear the words of Jesus just as these women did. That Jesus himself said that after three days he would rise. 
Mary Magdalene would have known that Jesus had the power to directly change her life from someone who appeared irredeemable to someone who was now spiritually clean. Salome would have known the impact of Jesus' ministry to her two sons who followed Jesus and gave up everything to go to him. Mary, if this was indeed Jesus' mother, was prophesied that her son would be called the Son of God. How more direct can you get? They had all the information right in front of them. They have encountered the living God with immense depth, and still they were living out this day as though nothing had ever been different. Friends, we can know details surrounding the resurrection. We can even have the impact of Jesus on our lives, affecting our afflictions, knowing Bible truths of what was said about him, knowing family members that were changed by him, but we can still act and believe as though he is still dead. We can assume that life can never be any different. Even when Jesus has shown us to us personally that this isn't the case. And sometimes Christians can be the most cynical, the most pessimistic, the most bitter, and live as their lives as though Jesus is still dead and that nothing in life will ever be different. The resurrection challenges our assumptions. Not only what happened in history, but what is also possible in your life and mine. You don't have to be like the disciples, assuming that being a Christian means the death of your life and so run into hiding. You don't have to be like these women, knowing Christ and yet living as though he was in the grave. The resurrection grants us the cause to say, how is Jesus going to transform us? How is Jesus going to change us? How is Jesus going to challenge our understanding of the world as it really is and to understand Jesus' power working in our lives in ways that we can't even begin to imagine? His resurrected body means that for those of us who hope in Christ, death will not be the end for us. We too will resurrect to new life to be in glorious fellowship with God. Death does not have the final say. The tragedy is not the end of the story. Pastor Chris Davis of Groveton Baptist Church wrote a fantastic book during the pandemic. I would commend to you all to read it. It's a very short book called Bright Hope for Tomorrow, a practical theology book about what Jesus' resurrection and return means for us today. And he talked about four things that the resurrection changes our assumptions on. And I want to read these to you. So what are the assumptions that are changed? One, that we are permanent not temporary, meaning that we have an everlasting life and an everlasting world that we will live in. Two, the resurrection challenges our assumptions that we are imperishable, not perishable, that our bodies will be restored from sickness, death, and decay that we see in our lives. Three, that we are glorious, not just lowly creatures, not just atoms firing up together. And because of the glory of Christ, we will shine brighter than any Rihanna song could ever describe. That our life in Christ will be resurrected in glory and for. That we are ultimately, in the end, spiritual beings, not just mere natural flesh and bone. And that one day we will be cast off from the sorrows and difficulties of this world in a joy unspeakable, in the happiness and splendor that only being in the presence of God can fully provide.
You see, the resurrection challenges our assumptions about what life is and what is possible. But not only that, the resurrection challenges our fears. The woman came to the grave of Jesus and they find the stole had been rolled away, a very large stone that no one person could have simply cast aside. The Roman guards that would have accompanied such a grave were gone. And entering in the tomb, they see the appearance of a young man instantly sitting at the right side. You, you ever walk into a room and everyone, someone just gave you a jump scare in that moment? It's terrifying, at least for me. I mean, I'm a little bit of a wimp, right? Especially for these women when you're expecting to see nothing but the dead. The Bible understates this quite nicely by simply saying they were alarmed. <laughs> but it was probably even scarier than that depending on how good you are. Who is this young man? The phrasing that Mark uses to describe this young man is akin to other historical records of not just scripture, but other historical text in the biblical era regarding the appearance of an angelic-like figure. So when Mark is using this phrasing of the young man, he's using it very carefully. He's using it to associate it with the appearance of other angels just like the historian Josephus, the shepherd of Hermas, and other written documents of the era. So what is alarming at this tomb is not just simply the fact that there was someone present, but that there was an angelic figure, the messenger from God. Now these three women, well aware of the Old Testament teachings, know that when an angel of God comes to visit you, it can be quite terrifying. But the angel of the Lord here is reminding them that they do not need to be afraid of him. And more importantly, they do not need to be afraid of where Jesus is. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See where they laid him. See the place where they laid him. What the angel of the Lord has to tell them is that the resurrection conquers the fear of what they thought Jesus' place was in the world. The fear that accompanies you when your reality is changed, when your assumptions are taken away, when the world isn't what you thought it would be, when your life is about, these are the places of fear that can drive us to despair. The biblical counselors Dan Allender and Tremper Longman's book, In the Cry of the Soul, reminds us of what this kind of fear does to us. I'm going to read this quote here for you. All of us fear what we cannot control. Fear is our response to uncertainty about our resources in the face of danger when we are assaulted by a force that overwhelms us and compels us to face that we are helpless and out of control. Fear is provoked when the threat of danger, whether physical or relational, exposes our inability to preserve what we most deeply cherish. We fear physical and personal death. We fear dissolution, fragmentation, coming apart at the seams, non-being. We feel fear whenever death, the dissolution of order and coherence, plunges us into the dark unknown. Perhaps this, is, perhaps this is you this morning. Perhaps you come to church with this ungodly fear, driving you to despair, putting you into a state of mind where the darkest things hit your soul, and what is the remedy to that fear? When Isaiah the prophet receives a vision from the Lord, he realizes that the fear of his uncleanliness 
of his own heart and realizes that he needs a total renewal of his life. So Isaiah asks for him to be healed. Isaiah needs resurrection. So do we. And so do the women at the tomb. But the angel tells these women not to fear, though the reality of their lives had changed. Though they thought they were headed in a direction that was against the way that God had shaped their current reality. Though their expectations of life were different than what they could have imagined. Their fear would not lead to condemnation, but rather a better reality. The resurrected Christ has come into the world and the perfect love that has entered to die for their sins, to bridge heaven and earth, to restore their fellowship with the Father has arrived. The resurrection changes us from a people of fear of the dark unknown to people rejoicing at the coming of the light of the world. And that's what leads us to our last thing that the resurrection challenges us with today. That the resurrection challenges us with our calling in this life. The incredible reality of the gospel writers is that the resurrection changes the paradigm of what was thought to be known as credible back in the era of the Roman Empire in the Second Temple Judaism. The women of the biblical era, as they have in every generation, were marginalized, despised, and treated with a way less than their God-given dignity and power. And the force of the angel's words here are that the resurrection changes their calling. It changes their assumptions of what the world should think of them and gives them their dignity back, restores their purpose in the light of God's truth. You see, they are to be witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. They are to be given the power to proclaim that Jesus is alive to the disciples to tell others what he has done. Now, if you've read Mark's gospel in full and you've been with us in this series, you will once again see that Mark counts the testimony of the most unlikely of people in his era to tell the greatest truths about Jesus far clearly than those who should have known better. The women here, although their testimony in this period of time would not have been allowed in a court of law, are the ones that are given the greatest credibility the greatest purpose, the greatest task to go share the good news of Christ. Whereas society would look upon them with suspicion, with lowliness, the resurrection of Jesus has given them a calling that is far more worthy than the world has pronounced unto them. It's no wonder that they struggled with this reality in verse 8. This resurrection has changed everything that they believed about themselves from a world telling them that this is who you are. But the angel of the Lord reminds them that the resurrection of Christ is giving them a brand new life, a brand new identity, a brand new conception of their own worth. The resurrection changes the course of their lives in a way that initially, initially, in verse 8, drives them to astonishment and trembling, for they were afraid. I mean, who wouldn't be? So what becomes of these women as they leave the tomb? The stirring end of this portion of Mark's gospel leaves the matter open-ended. Mark doesn't resolve the tension. Do they wind up telling the disciples? What becomes of their calling that the resurrection has changed their lives? What, what results from the end of the way that the resurrection has shaped them? Mark's gospel doesn't say. This is in some ways perhaps why there is this huge debate as to whether or not this truly is the end 
of Mark's gospel. All this time we've been reading about how a proper fear of the Lord accompanies the revelation of who Jesus is, the Son of God who comes to save the world. So in some sense, this seems like a very appropriate way to end Mark's gospel. But if Mark 16, 8 is truly the end and 9 through 20 is the epilogue, then it begs a burning hole in the question of us here today. The women were filled with fear about this new calling to profess about the resurrection. What about you? What will you do with the news that Christ has risen? How will you respond? How will the resurrection change you today? Friends, if this is your first time you've been in church for a while, you have to face this question on answering who Jesus is. This is the question for all of humanity to answer. And I pray that the word of God here today would convince you that the deepest longings of your heart for redemption, the longing your heart for the things of eternity, the salvation from all of your sins, the joy that you wish to have to make sense of the calling of your life, that you would find it in the dignity that Christ is giving to you here today. That you would find it in a Christ who has paid the penalty for your sins. In a Christ that loves you far greater than any person could ever love you. You would find it in Jesus today. The Son of God. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. That the greatest expression of love the earth has ever known is for you. This gospel is for you today. He is not dead. He is alive. My prayer is that you would believe this. And for those of you who this has been a lifelong tradition for you, you've known Jesus, you have lived with him, you have walked with him, I want you to consider how the resurrection shapes you on your calling of your life today. And like the women of Mark, you have a choice to make. Will you let your assumptions continue to guide you? Will you let your fear grip you? Will you follow your calling or will you follow the calling of Christ? How will the resurrection challenge you today? As Mark leaves this question open, I want to leave the question open for you. So let's pray together.